Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to GOLA. I'm Katie Parla, a Rome-based food and beverage writer, culinary guide, and cookbook author. And I'm Danielle Caligari, assistant professor of Italian at Dartmouth College and a certified specialist of wine. Buonasera. Buonasera, Katie. Come stai? Abbastanza bene. I'm preso un sacco di acqua stamattina. I've been... I'm good. Uh, it did pour during my entire tour this morning. Hashtag Parla Tours. Sometimes happens in in the rain. Sometimes it happens in the sunshine. <laughs> you can't have it every way all the time. So. That's true. And we yeah. needed the rain, honestly. That's true. Italy has been extra dry. But, well, it's been a weird season in general, I would say, right? Wow. Yeah, like 60 degrees at New Year's and then no rain during, you know, the, the late winter, which is usually pretty wet. Yeah. Well, wet winters aside, we are in a moment in which the change of seasons kind of makes people start thinking about the various kinds of new foods that you will be enjoying, particularly in the run-up to Passover and Easter. And you and I were just discussing how interesting those foods are because of their essential differences at the level of what holds them together. Um, and in a lot of ways, it's sort of what holds together all Italian cuisine. And that's the choice of lipid that defines place and food item really strongly here. Absolutely. And should we start with our fave? I guess so. Well, our fave... I'm assuming we have the same fave. <laughs> Well, let's start by saying that it's a category that in general is our favorite, and that's fat in all of its many beautiful forms. Uh, we're both children of a an American generation that were raised to be terrified of the word fat and of consuming it, I think, right? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in the era of, I can't believe it's not butter. Eat this margarine because butter's so bad for you, and this is the opposite. Yeah, exactly. We're here to remind you that fat is your friend. It doesn't actually make you fat, just to be clear. Um, calories are consumed in all different forms. And in fact, there are lots of good reasons to be consuming more fat. But if you're in Italy, you're hyper aware of it because you know that it is the very basis of any cuisine, not just in the literal sense we're talking about of how you get any dish started, but also because it reflects really strongly where you are and how you see yourself in comparison to other places on the peninsula. Absolutely. You know, I think it's maybe a generalization, but I feel like there is a pork fat zone. Yes. That covers Sardinia, Sicily to some extent, and then Naples and heading south. Yes. Um, whereas if you're in certain altitudes and environments, you're going to be consuming a lot of olive oil, 
butter from cow's milk used to be much more widely consumed in areas of Italy, including Rome, in fact. Right. But the shift in agricultural lands and the sort of concentration of cattle or full absence of cattle in certain areas mean that uh, butter is now deeply associated with Alpine territories in Lombardy um, or even up in uh, Friuli or Trentino and Alto Adige, etc. Um, there's all sorts of other stuff too. Absolutely. And to bring us back to your beginning, what is the top fat according to Katie Parla? Strutto. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we do have the same one, I figured. <laughs> well, strutto is uh, rendered pork fat and it's really dominant in parts of Italy where the raising and then winter slaughtering of a pig really uh, formed the foundation of a rural family's economic life. And in many parts of Basilicata, Calabria, Campania, uh, the ritual of raising pigs um, to sell, uh, to sell their their fresh and cured meat, um, uh, it really would have kept families alive quite literally because the poor cuts um, and the strutto or the rendered fat would be kept often for the family's consumption. Um, strutto could also be used to preserve salami. So imagine like a, I see these in, in kitchens all over the South still today, jars of uh, pork lard filled with salamis in order to preserve them longer. Um, and in a place where many of the dishes look quite vegan because they're legume and wild vegetable-based. In fact, the the sort of base fat uh, that's used to communicate flavor is often uh, strutto. Yes. And I would say your point about it being part of a uh, a kind of a larger structuring principle is really important here. So that when the reason why we're thinking of it in a moment of season change as something that comes to mind specifically is because people are actually moving their lives around the availability of fresh uh, iterations of fat versus preserved ones using fat to preserve as uh, almost always is the kind of main thrust of any of these uh, productions. You're talking about uh, salami or any other kinds of cured meat. They contain fat, but then they are also wrapped in fat and then further sometimes put under oil or other forms of fat in order to uh, further preserve them. And then the uh, expectation for when you will have new fresh fat is uh, going to lead you through to the next season from there. Exactly. Yeah. And just to pick out, you know, two of the the main ones in, in Italy, uh, the fall harvest of olives leads to olio nuovo, which is the most prized because it still is rich in antioxidants. It's, you know, it's properly made. It's still very peppery almost spicy. It tastes like fresh olive juice. It's got a lot of vibrance and liveliness. And as soon as it's produced, it begins to deteriorate. Um, And then uh, it's consumed ideally within the year. But you can really taste the difference between uh, oils as they kind of decay over time in spite of our best efforts to preserve them. Um, And that fall season rolls into winter when in certain parts of Italy, either a specific day uh, anchored uh, with a saint 
or a specific temperature triggers the the pig slaughter in in the winter. January tends to be the sort of main month for stuff like this. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you get invited to a pig slaughtering as you will if you are in especially places like Abruzzo where we visited together and where our listeners can hear all about us traveling and enjoying in an earlier episode from this season. Um, you will get that just after the calendar new year. And it, again, is this uh, hard marker of uh, the re taking off of uh, what's next for us and what you're going to eat will be dictated by that. So I have a question about that animal fat and its use in a sort of successive period in the late winter uh, Lent. Yes. <laughs> is it is it allowed? So this is another way in which fat becomes so incredibly important to, uh, you know, not just Italian diet, but Italian identity. Obviously, our podcast is basically built on the idea that identity and uh, these products are one and the same in, in many ways. But more than ever, fat is, or more than others, uh, fat becomes that ingredient that you can follow in that way because it is something that uh, speaks to what you're doing in terms of faith practice as well as these agricultural practices. So in the Lenten season and all these things we've discussed in uh, other episodes as well, so if people want to go back to hearing more about olive oil, there's room for that. We've discussed Lent specifically and things that you might eat during that time. We've discussed the regional specificities here in other contexts. But uh, we're going to bring together our discussion of all of those things into this one through line of fat because it is a, a choice that you are making based on all of those things. And so because it's so qualitative, it's kind of a shorthand for everything about yourself on, in terms of your the, con, the contours or confines of your Italian identity. During Lent, the tradition would be to switch off of any animal fat of any kind. So that would include butter, as well as the pig fat that we that you mentioned is uh, used widely in the South and in the uh, islands that are just sort of thrown in and called the South, whether they're South or not. And uh, also, in theory, replaced at that point by possibly olive oil, but maybe also other forms of oil that have become more important in uh, contemporary Italy because of economic questions. So it kind of brings us around and just ties it all up with a nice bow because if you are deciding what you're going to use to start the condimento for your pasta, the um, basis of a any kind of a dough, the preserving techniques that we talked about, you're choosing that and you are going to make a switch at certain moments of the year and according to your ability to purchase things. And as Italians, in particularly over the last two decades, and especially following the 2008 uh, Great Recession and or Depression, depending on how you want to characterize it, a depression, I would say, for anybody who's under the age of 40 here, it was uh, necessary to move off of some of the even very inexpensive traditionally fats available toward uh, more, I guess we could say, synthesized ones to some extent. So vegetable oils like 
sunflower oil or sort of corn oil blends of different vegetal things that tend to be mass produced and therefore cheaper than the hand harvested olive oil. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And sun, you know, I think people, if you've driven around central Italy, you'll see these beautiful fields of sunflowers and people think that they're there either for the majesty that they bring to the landscape. They're for the gram. Right. Exactly. Um, or, you know, for the seeds uh, to be consumed in their seed form. But in fact, um, most sunflower production is for oil and uh, many of the other forms that are now widely used are not part of those traditions. So we also get to see that evolution, for better or worse, from, you know, even where we have pig fat being used as a a cheaper form of fat than olive oil or butter, it then shifts one more time towards a blended, often, vegetable oil that is going to be very versatile oil, but probably not as nutritionally relevant. Yeah. And you also find it across the peninsula and the islands uh, as the basis for frying. So in a in a culture where pork fat or uh, olive oil was used for frying, that's been almost fully replaced by uh, different types of uh, synthetic vegetable, synthesized vegetable oils. Absolutely. So if you're thinking about what kinds of foods are going to be produced based on the fat that you have available Let's take a step away from it being imposed upon you and then and start by just thinking about what you use these different fats for if you have the imbarazzo della scelta, as they say, uh, or any anything available. And then we can talk about some of the trends that have emerged as a result of availability and of industrialization generally. Well, I like to imagine in this scenario that I am a Ligurian baker and I make all sorts of focaccia, focacce, plural, um, and I'm just going to douse those buddies in olive oil. <laughs> in in a way, though, I feel more fully connected to uh, the bakers of Puglia. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to put Pugliese olive oil all over my focaccia and also in the dough to make an enriched dough. Meanwhile, in a third incarnation of Katie Parla's dream world, <laughs> I am a baker in the Sanio in Campania, and I'm going to make sweet and savory doughs at my bakery uh, with pork fat, rendered pork fat, and then maybe pork fat chunks. Yes. Uh, incorporated into the dough for good measure. That's my only contribution. <laughs> yes. 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 <laughs> Do it. <laughs> Think about it. If I'm a Neapolitan street food vendor, then I'm going to throw some chicory, little chunks of pork fat in my pork fat enriched dough. So it's going to be like a double uh, whammy situation. <laughs> or no, whammies are bad, right? No, They say no whammies. <laughs> I got that analogy wrong. Um, you know, essentially, if if I'm not constrained by any religious restrictions, when I'm baking, I'm going to be very generous with the pork fat or the olive oil that reflects what is typical of the place that I'm that I'm in. You know, here in here in Rome, we're kind of in this place that's had a, a shifting relationship with fat where butter used to be used quite a bit. Um, the myth that like butter is only used in the north or in France, and that's that's simply untrue. But uh, think about what Rome was like throughout the Renaissance until the modern period when cows grazed right along sheep, with sheep and and goats even in the center of town. So there would have been uh, quite a bit of butter introduced in, into dishes um, and we've got lots of uh, documentary evidence to support the butter, the butter presence. But then also, of course, tons of strutto guys. Yeah, 
<laughs> and don't let us forget Struta. Um, the, absolutely. I, I like um, starting from the uh, dream of you being a baker, not just because it's a love, it's a dream that would also help for my dreams to come true, but because I think that we undervalue the connection of uh, between fat and baked, uh, particularly bread, because and in, in its many forms, focaccia and others, uh, that the presence of it there is a reminder of how essential it is in in the diet in the way that bread is itself, right? So um, the incorporation of fats into those items is something that makes people hyper aware of the presence of fat, how it's used, and why and when. Absolutely. And in some of the very places that we've talked about, pasta would not have been a daily, the daily carbohydrate. That would have been uh, bread enriched with oil or, uh, or another type of fat and one that was meant to last a week or more in order to to support a family's caloric intake. And so it would have been used in various forms, fresh for a day or two, and then uh, toasted or uh, inzupato, like um, placed in a soup or some sort of stew in order to uh, to enrich the structure of, of something like that. I'm thinking a lot about, so I was at Panificio Bonchi today, and we're not in a deeply Catholic city, shockingly. We're in Rome. Yeah, I get it. That's the Vatican's not too far. We can walk there in 10 minutes from here. But, uh, you know, in a, in certain eras, it would be unthinkable that a bakery would be open and already selling their butter enriched colombe, those delicious sweet yeasted breads for Easter. Uh, but I happened to be at, at Panificio Bonchi today when they were taking out their pizza di formaggio and not the pizza by the slice that you that you would typically associate with Gabriele Bonchi, but instead the Southern Italian uh, in lard enriched dough yeasted bread that's studded with chunks of cheese. And it looks like a little panettone. And when you pick it up, you expect it to be heavy because you think it's a panettone. And then when you do pick it up, it's so much heavier than a panettone. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. what we're getting the sense of here is that this thing is really dense and really, really heavy. And when people would be keeping their Lenten restrictions, it's one of the one of the first things that ends up on the table once uh, once the Easter uh, holiday commences and, and you're back to eating uh, your regularly scheduled diet. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And then the other place where I think you are understanding fat as an anchor in a literal and metaphoric sense in the diet is at the start of, well, to some extent, any dish always starts with fat, right? But especially the start of any kind of condimento or soup uh, that you would be adding whatever you have laying around uh, and allowing it to become something akin to a bread stew or other possibly more legume based, but uh, enriched in that way. So it's it becomes also a kind of blank canvas uh, that you, you know, paint the rest of your meal on. And so if you're starting your breads with it, you're starting anything that is a kind of centerpiece of a meal or of the diet for the rest of the week. You're picking the fat and allowing it to carry you through calorically, like you say, Katie, but also as a a basis for the kinds of flavors that you might develop because the type of fat is also going to dictate how 
everything else tastes later, not just in the case of pig fat, which is going to have some more strength to it, or an olio nuovo, which has its own very specific kind of uh, flavor profile, but also in terms of the development of flavor. And this is really important in Italian cuisine because, as we all know, there isn't the use of a lot of different ingredients with that pack huge punches of flavor. Instead, there's depth and concentration. Yes, absolutely. The absence of flavor slash presence of fat is something that I think every Italian breakfast consumer is super familiar with um, because margarine is, I, you know, we need the stats on this, but I would, I would wager real money that <laughs> the consumption of margarine in Italy via the Cornetto or Danish or whatever uh, breakfast um, fagotino chocolate or whatever people are having uh, accounts for a huge amount of margarine consumption. And if you're sitting and thinking about it and you bite into that cornetto or danese or whatever and you let your palate process the flavors, you do not taste butter. You do not taste olive oil. You taste a kind of inert palate coating lipid. That's your margarina. Yes, absolutely. If you, yeah, I, I do hope that people, if they haven't already had this experience, when they come to Italy and enjoy Italian pastry, have a chance to compare and contrast those experiences because it really is exactly that. You you bite into it and you think, my mouth is covered with something. Why mm. is this happening? <laughs> Yeah, and there's a cool place that we know and love called Casa Manfredi in Rome where you can have, you know, butter-based croissants that are laminated in a kind of French style, others that are laminated more in the, like, restrained Roman style, a little sort of breadier, cakier. Um, but that's not the norm. The norm is you get your cornetti delivered from a big factory at the edge of Rome, and it's made with a huge litany of ingredients that you need, like a chemistry degree to fully analyze. Um, and that's because it's cheaper. Uh, margarine is not as perishable as butter. And because baked goods in that category, for the most part, have been industrialized now for the better part of seven decades. Um, and so, uh, you know, the very time-consuming, temperature-reliant, um, labor-intensive practice of making laminated uh, butter-based pastry is not something that most uh, cafes and, and uh, anyway, purveyors of breakfast sweets uh, will invest in. And people won't pay for it. Right. Absolutely. And mostly because they can't, not just because they're not interested. So when we talk about these items, we are already pointing to, and I've already uh, made a uh, reference to the, our other episodes that talk about regionality and you gave us a kind of quick landscape of where certain fats are more likely to be used or where there's tradition of using a certain one uh, that maybe has shifted now economically toward another more readily available and less expensive version. But what would you say are the kind of uh, dishes that represent the use of fat best in the broad regions, if we go, you know, north, center, south. If we're, we start in the center for me, in, for, for me as the representative of someone who's willing to be in Tuscany, even though Katie's slowly giving in, I think. 
I accept the coastal region and Pisa. <laughs> okay. And the Lazio border. And the Lazio border with, with Okay, we're getting closer, slowly but surely. Years from now, Katie and I will be <laughs> we, will not be, we will not be recording from Florence anytime soon, my friend. Okay. Well, in any case, if I'm coming from the center of Italy, I feel like people are thinking about a fresh olive oil as itself the centerpiece. So you have a very plain bread. And, Ooh, yeah. dippers. <laughs> a famous Italian dipperoni. <laughs> No, it doesn't. It doesn't sound <laughs> terribly appealing. I do understand. Let's workshop it. Uh, yeah, the uh, a bread that is uh, with as little flavor as possible, so that it allows a new, fresh, spicy oil to completely uh, steal the show and be the absolute focus. So, you know, again, if we're not talking about choices being made by the uh, other determining factors. And you're just saying, how can I enjoy the fat that our region produces? I think a plain piece of toast, a fetunta is what Mm. you'll see it represented as usually, uh, with a lot, a lot of olive oil on it. And that's the thing that stands out to people who aren't from the region because you will see somebody crack open a new bottle of olive oil, turn it over, and just hold it there. And you're thinking to yourself, is this person seriously going to dump half a bottle of olive oil on this piece of bread? Yes, they very much are going to. (laughs) I mean, olive oil as a a preservative, um, really for me, uh, says large parts of the South um, and mountainous regions in Central central Italy in the form of sotoli. You might have a big zucchini harvest, grill up those zucchini maybe, or alternatively, you know, boil them with a little bit of vinegar, drain them and put them in a jar with olive oil. You might do something similar to eggplant. Um, you might uh, fire roast your artichoke hearts and then preserve them under oil. And this category of sotoli uh, is a really, really important pantry anchor all over the South in certain areas. And then in the like sort of more salami-driven cultures in parts of Basilicata and uh, Calabria. I'm thinking of the the um, strutto-preserved meats uh, that you find in sometimes it's just little little chunks of sort of off-cuts that weren't sold off that provide, you know, a little bit of calories and a lot of flavor, uh, but aren't, you know, prestigious cuts by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. What about up north? What's going on there? (laughs) Well, I think in that case, we will see butter getting pride of place when it comes to people thinking of a a dish that stars fat. So that um, Lombardian butter and beaten something that is appreciated for having very specific characteristics in it, a grassy note, a a particularly creamy note, an understanding of the quantity of milk fat that's in the butter, and then allowing that to be uh, as important as the vehicle, much like the, uh, or more so, so that you have fresh pastas where the condimento is simply butter, right? Mm-hmm. There's absolutely mm-hmm. nothing else to it. Um, maybe also with uh, some cheese, maybe also with a wild mushroom or a truffle, mm-hmm. but um, the the butter is is the ingredient. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you know, fresh pasta with burro e salvia or butter and sage, uh, tallerine, 
um, which are the really delicate strands of pasta from uh, around Piedmont, uh, dressed with butter and maybe also sage or truffle. Um, all of those sound so, 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 so delicious. And then, I mean, this is kind of like, it's kind of like the most delicious thing that you're served when you're sick here, but burro e parmigiano, um, or you could have like a buttery um, risotto, and risotto is always mantecato at the end with some fat and butters, mainly the fat that's used. An, yeah. emuls- an emulsification that happens as the as the risotto is becoming al dente, and you just kind of like, you know, agitate it to make it even more creamy. It, it gets some of the final starch out of the rice, and it just makes everything like so cremoso. <laughs> um, there's another, you know, we talked a little bit about margarine, which um, is used a lot of in, in industrial baking, but then it also forms an important uh, feature of the Roman Jewish sweets tradition um, because it is not an animal fat um, and therefore sort of renders things inert um, in that in, in from a sort of animal ingredient sense. Uh, it's really present in the crusts of uh, crostate um, or some cookies. Um, and then an animal fat that is common in at least historical recipes of the Roman Jewish tradition is goose fat. Yes, absolutely. And that is going to be used in the same way that we've talked about uh, already for other kinds of recipes, also as the basis for bread, for the crostata, uh, uh, the frolla, that, that mm-hmm. is the kind of pastry dough, the the basis for a condimento for a pasta eventually, and uh, using that with the same flexibility. And uniting both faith traditions and uh, regional diversity is frying oil, which we mentioned before. And that was once often olive oil or sometimes a mixture, now tends to be more of the sunflower oil. In any case, without necessarily using prejudice, the point is that as the basis for frying, and since fried treats are the treats, whether they be savory or sweet, it is absolutely essential. And I think Italians tend to have a much more sensitive understanding of what different oils might be used, olive or otherwise, and uh, how to make the most of them, how to react to temperature control, and how to keep them fresh and useful because oil uh, does go rancid no matter what kind. Absolutely. And if you're wondering what rancid oil smells like, <laughs> um, think like a wet cardboard that a wet dog has rolled on top of, um, or even just wet cardboard if it's lightly rancid. And these are the notes that you're going to find in a lot of the olive oils on shelves absolutely everywhere. It's really, really, it's such a volatile product, olive oil. And it's one that uh, has a, a, a legal shelf life that far surpasses the duration in which the oil tastes fresh. Um, And the longer it's out in the wild, the more temperature and light it's exposed to or temperature fluctuations and potentially light that it's exposed to and the the sort of less likely it is to have those desirable characteristics of a pungent, fragrant, fresh-tasting oil. So that's why everyone should use Struto instead. It does does take some of the guesswork out of the equation. And I know we've talked about this so many times before, but I I just always enjoy when I tell people that they should be basically done with whatever olive oil they've opened within about a month or less. And they 
all their eyebrows touch their their hair <laughs> because they're like uh, remembering that they have olive oil that they bought two years ago that they've still been nursing, right? I know. I'm such a hoarder of things that I buy when I'm traveling. Like I have I have canned tuna that my friend's mom made that I like definitely got in 2016. And I'm like, I'm definitely going to definitely going to eat this. But I was like, oh, we wait for, for a special time. And I'm like, now this is, it's olive oil cured. Right. So yeah. it's like already it's not, time. not it's chill. Definitely time. Yeah. Um, and yeah, if you want age worthy things when you're in Italy, like for sure, some canned fish can last a long time. Um, vinegars can last a long time. Um, it's not, it's not like they're going to turn back into wine or anything, get uninoculated. <laughs> um, but get that olive oil fresh and then use it as soon as you get home. Don't wait. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> There's another kind of fat we haven't talked about exactly yet that brings us to a a space of uh, I think sort of nomenclature discomfort again which is lardo Mm. and we're I mean the term lard in English versus lardo in Italian is complicated because it's not a perfect translation and because lard is more like strutto right exactly Um, and then we have cured pig fat that is designed to be served as an affettato or as the, again, star ingredient that brings us back to another example of a place where fat wouldn't just be the basis or the anchor, but actually the the essence of the dish. And whipped lardo, for example, uh, you'll get served in a variety of forms, again, as simply on a piece of hot toast, or if it has been firmly cured, then thinly sliced and allowed to melt again on either a hot toast or on top of something else. I recently had a, a, a tagliata covered in lardo, which is, I think, literally the definition of decadence because it's a piece of lean beef to which that was removed from the fatty part that then was refatted by the addition of lardo. I like that. I, even yeah. though I know I know you ate that in Tuscany, I still like the idea of it. <laughs> it was very it was a very Tuscan moment for sure. And I thought of you while I ate lardo covered steak and then laughed. Yeah, I like that very much. Yeah, uh, lardo is cured fat back, um, and it looks a really thick version of the white part of. Uh, pancetta. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and it's, you know, a thick, two inch thick slab that you find stacked up on meat shelves at delis and supermarkets. And when sliced really thinly and put on a piece of toast, maybe drizzled with some honey, I don't know, go wild. Yeah. Um, it really creates a very delicious, delicious bite. So again, once again, so hungry. I know, I know. We're having a really hard day recording because we're just talking about all of our favorite things and we have not fed ourselves yet. Yeah, this is a theme. It's it's fine. <laughs> we, we got this. We'll get through it. Well, speaking of being really hungry, what would be your favorite thing that is a dish that makes fat the star? Well, I really, really love Casatiello. I was going to say exactly that. Yeah. Oh, my God. You were yeah, right there with me. Yeah. So this is like one of those um, pizza, sometimes it's called like pizza. It is, it looks, again, a little bit like panettone from the outside. It is a lard-enriched dough that's studded with cubes of pork fat, cubes of provolone, cubes of pancetta, 
other ingredients too, like sometimes cubes of capocollo, lots of black pepper, and then it's either baked in a round dish or baked in a bunt pan after hard boiled, chopped up hard boiled eggs have been put inside the dough at times. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, especially this time of year, uh, little dough cages are used to trap uh, hard boiled eggs on top of the casatiello. I so like you the get, idea that they're trapped, they're trapped trying to escape. They're yeah. trapped. They can't go anywhere. Um, and that is like, it's one of those things where you like, you barely touch it and your fingers are so greasy. It's the best ever. I love, love, love casatiello. And uh, as anyone familiar with Neapolitan dialect may have guessed, casatiello is from Campania. Um, but is, you know, a similar genre to a lot of those uh, savory, enriched uh, dough breads that signal the end of Lent and the beginning of your binge for Easter. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Well, so we have the same the same favorite one. So I will let that, uh, your point about having your hands covered in fat also bring us to a place of discussing how people react to those things and feel about them. Because we started by saying that in America, there's a feeling that the presence of fat is something that we should sort of shy away from or that um, using it too much in cooking is a problem. Consuming too much of it is unhealthy. Um, of course, you know, we're, we're using some really decadent examples and they're highly caloric foods. So yes, in a particularly right now in a developed nation, most people don't need to be packing that many calories into single bites. That being said, the reaction to fat in Italy is hugely different. And I I think for me, it was something that, you know, we I spent a lot of time already talking about how the relationship with fat here is tied to all of these different elements of being Italian. But even more broadly than that, I think there's this dividing line between at least Italian and American culture when it comes to how you feel about it in a much more general sense. Yeah. Although I would say that in the now 20 years I've been here, I've seen an increased stigma, especially amongst, you know, young people, young women. Yes. Um, there is a real, you know, when I when I first moved here, I remember one of my uh, friend's moms went to a dietitian and he put her on a very strict diet of like prosciutto and mozzarella and right. like, yes, you know, yeah. small portions mm -hmm. of things, but there was there was nothing that had to be eliminated per se. It's more like you keep your calorie consumption under the number of calories you're burning and you're going to lose weight. Like that's math. But restrictive diets, things that use uh, olive oil instead of uh, strutto or delicacies, like seasonal delicacies, whether it's castagnole or beignet that are baked instead of fried, that is just becoming so much more common. So I would say because like wellness and the perception of certain fats as being like traditional and old school and bad for you because they're not modern and that I definitely have seen, like maybe this is anecdotal, but I've definitely seen that manifested um, all over the place. And, you know, people are just, I mean, I'm like in my 40s, you know. <laughs> Yeah. When you get into your 40s, your friends, like I try to watch what I eat kind of, um, but your friends start watching what they eat. They start going on diets and, and my friend's mom's dietitian put her, on, put her on a much different diet 20 years ago than she would today just based on what my pals are telling me about their 
uh, prescribed diets. You know, like no oil at all. You have to uh, poach your chicken and it has to be a breast. It can't be dark meat and uh, like just a really super shockingly bland uh, approach to to dieting, which might actually be more online with what an American dietitian. I actually I shouldn't say that because I actually don't know what <laughs> dietitians uh, would prescribe. But you know, sort of more something that feels more extreme and more like something you might encounter in uh, in America, where there is so much restrictive dining yeah. and disordered issues and stuff like that. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I I think that um that shift is happening and we're we're watching it happen absolutely. The up until pretty recently though, we still had a a much stronger feeling of thinking about um using all ingredients with mm. in kind of equal respect and right just limiting the overall quantity and so there wouldn't be this sort of terrorized reaction to something like the steak I was describing before where it's a lot of meat and a lot of fat because it would be something that's appreciated as an appropriate place mm. to uh, have an, an addition of fat to something that needs that to hold its flavor, to give it that kind of depth and that um, consistency. And then also uh, enjoying it in a moment or um, in the course of a meal where some amount of fat would be appreciated and accompanied by other things that were uh, that balanced that. Yeah. And I also think that there's something, something to be said for the fact that here in Italy, we cook less and less. Yes. We trust a lot of a lot of our ingredients to supermarkets or bakeries where you don't necessarily you're not in control of what's in that food, right? How much salt, how much sugar. Um, and that's definitely a shift uh that I've noticed quite a bit from I mean, when I got here twenty years ago, people were still shopping at everyone was shopping at supermarkets already. It's just the reliance on on partially transformed things, I think, has grown. And then this is way before I got here, but like in the 60s, Italy became an urban country where more people are living in cities. They're not working in fields all day long and growing their own food and really devoted to having everything from scratch because that's not practical in an environment in which, uh, you know, generally speaking, one person in a family unit has the responsibility of all the shopping and all the food preparation. So, yeah, it's uh, it's the same way that people drink less per capita or drink less uh, and spend less on alcohol than they used to. And people also go out a lot more than they used to. Maybe not to trattoria all the time. That just hasn't been a, a, a possibility since uh, the various financial crises of the 21st century. But there was a time in the 20th century where going out for a big meal was a super rare special occasion. Um, and now it's much more common in the portions that people are served or are have really, really changed, especially the pasta portions having been scaled up considerably. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I, I just enjoy looking at that as even though it brings us into the place that we often end, which is in despair about the current enogastronomic landscape. But I I feel like most people think of uh, Italian food as brought together by all of these items that are actually not, you know, the, the the fat component, put it this way, is the least evident in most dishes. And yet it is the driving factor behind how things are made and who they represent. So, 
even if that's right now moving towards something that's a little bit more international and perhaps less nutritive and maybe even associated with a shame culture that we don't hope to see, it is nonetheless a really relevant and useful marker for us. I was just thinking about another fat circumstance, and that's in sausages. Oh, yeah. That's a very good one that we didn't get to yet. I can't believe that. I know, right? So you got uh, my favorite sausages are the ones at like the butcher where you could say like, I want the fattier. I want like the the shoulder sausage with the added fat. (laughs) With the more fat. Excuse me. Can I please have the one with the more fat? Yes. (laughs) Or one of my favorite things ever, induya, which today is probably... 40% fat, but used to be quite a bit fattier. That has also, the proportions of ingredients have also shifted a bit. But something that is like, it looks like chili tinted fat when you spread it. Yeah. (laughs) With some meat strands in it. So, 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 so good. Um, And then do you have any like intel on this? I love, so I love Turkish food the most. Sorry, Italy. But there's a lot of tail fat, like the types of uh, sheep and lambs in Turkey tend to be the the fat bottomed ones. So they're the extra fat cap, I guess you call on their on their bottoms. Right. Yeah. And so tail fat is like so present in that culture. What's up with Italians and the lamb and mutton fat? Anything? Oh, that's a really good question. I would say that that becomes something that's related to if. There's been a long tradition of grazing those animals and then being hyper attentive to using every single part of Mm. them. So our friends in Abruzzo, for example, definitely incorporate that into dishes. Yeah, you do see the the like fat cubes between the meat cubes in an arrosticino. Mm. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, but no, I think, you know, it's a good example because, again, it's a place where Italians see a dish and think to themselves, where does fat belong here? And think of how to uh, integrate it and use it to lift up the maybe more delicate flavors of other things without adding a lot of other spices or other, um, uh, maybe other acid components, for example. I just remembered another kind of fat. Which one? Call fat. Oh, yes. So when you go to butcher's in Italy, they tend to not be not to be working with whole huge animals. So they'll get like part of a pig or part of a, a cow, but they'll work with little veal or lambs and the sort of fatty network that encircles a lot of the organs. Even some of the like more compressed fat deposits around organs um, is used like at a Sardinia, if you're doing like a barbecue or something with lamb, you'll use some of the lamb fat to, to grease the grill. Um, and then in the like vast trove of offal dishes in Rome, call fat used to be used to like bind things together. So you would have uh, like a pig liver with bay leaves and other spices on it. You would wrap that in call fat and then grill it. And the call fat would hold everything together, but also like melt a little bit um, to season the grill. And then you use the little fat membrane as uh, twine. When you tie up the intestines of milk-fed veal to make the little payata rings for rigatoni con la payata. Now, Yum. yeah, I know. Now, now we're both just like sliding to the ground, <laughs> just in desperation for somebody to put some of this in our mouths. Uh, I want that so bad. <laughs> well, I think that's a pretty good roundup, but 
there are so many there are so many other places that it would come up, of course. And if we sat here thinking about it, we'd keep getting to them. You know, the way that they're popping into your head as as our conversation goes on is representative in that it's all over the place. That's the point, right? And um, it's used in a practical way. It's used in a way influenced by, as we mentioned, faith, seasonality, availability. It's changed by economics and politics and the move towards industrialization. The reception of it is shifting according to how people are marking themselves against the outside, in scare quotes, outside world from Italian uh, endogastronomic realities that preexisted and traditions and uh, that are now being eschewed in favor of being able to get things more quickly and easily and uh, in a way that uh, coincides with an urban lifestyle and a work schedule that doesn't permit people to do as much from scratch preparation. Um, but it's its presence everywhere, its, it's omnipresence is what makes it one of the kinds of foods that we can keep coming back to, to see, to, to track the changes that happen in the Italian diet and how that reflects the people who have created it and continue to uh, allow it to evolve. This is a good, delicious episode, Danielle. I'm glad we did grassi as our theme. And you summed up you summed up the theme so just astutely. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. You're uh, welcome. Well, I guess we earned our snack at this point. Jeez, right? We sure did. Okay. <laughs> Let's reward ourselves. Okay. Well, we look forward to talking more with our wonderful Golazi and hope that they will join us for future episodes, catch up on the past ones, and become patrons at patreon.com backslash Golapod. All right. Now let's have our patron roll call. Here we are. We love our supporters. Thank you so much to our Giotti level patrons like Allison and Gina Ruggiero of Fiorella in Rochester and Gabe Del Virginia of New York City. We also want to thank Anthony Lombardo at She Wolf Detroit and Leah Ferrazzani at Semolina Pasta in Pasadena 